This is Kyle Hyman. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm here with our good bishop, and we always like to start with the Angelus. Do you have an intention for today, Bishop? Kyle, I think it would be good for us to pray for peace in the world, especially given the situation with North Korea. Mm -hmm. And of course, praying for peace is important all the time. Yeah. But I think especially asking Our Lady, the Queen of Peace, to intercede for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary. And she conceived of the Holy Spirit. Hail, Hail Mary, Mary, full, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the Word was made flesh, and dwelt among us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech you, O Lord, your grace into our hearts, that we to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Our Lady, Queen of Peace, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this episode, Bishop Kevin Rhodes, Bishop of Fort Wayne, South Bend, talks about two special upcoming days, the Feast of the Exaltation of the Holy Cross and the Feast of Our Lady of Sorrows. Then, the sin of racism and how the church is responding. Afterwards, it's listener-submitted questions. If you would like to submit a question for Bishop to answer on a future show, go to RedeemerRadio.com askbishop or download the Redeemer Radio app to your smartphone or tablet. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and today we will be talking about a couple different topics, and then we'll be answering some questions from listeners. You can always submit your questions at RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. And this weekend, we have something special happening in the diocese, a special collection happening for Catholic Charities USA, specifically to help with hurricane relief. So just a reminder to listeners about that. Yes, and our people are always so generous in helping victims of these natural disasters, and we know how devastating, especially the flooding in Texas and Louisiana. So, so I encourage everyone to make a special sacrificial gift. The collection will be taken up at all the masses and parishes throughout the diocese. Do you know what the work of Catholic Charities is down in the Houston area? And Yeah, I mean... Catholic Charities is working with um, basically emergency services, so helping with the cleanup, obviously, but also providing for food and clothing and shelter for people who've been displaced. But then also long-term recovery is an important aspect of Catholic Charities' work as well. So it'll move from providing the immediate needs to also more long-term needs. Most of it is given to Catholic Charities, but also some is given to the local church okay. to help with, with particular needs because of 
churches and schools and Catholic institutions that have also been devastated by the hurricane. So that'll be September 16th and 17th. You can expect a, a separate collection. And for people that want more information about Catholic Charities, you can go to catholiccharitiesusa.org for information about the work that they're doing uh, to alleviate the disaster of Hurricane Harvey and relief there. And as well as you can make donations through that website as well. Uh, also, tomorrow we have a feast day, one that a lot of people might not be aware of. And I, I know that this isn't something that I've regularly celebrated myself, but the Feast of the Exaltation of the Holy Cross. Where does this come from? Well, it has its origins back in the fourth, early 4th century. I think it was the year 320 with the discovery by St. Helena, the mm-hmm. mother of the Emperor Constantine, the discovery of the true cross of Jesus. And so the Feast of the Exaltation of the Holy Cross really celebrates the finding of the cross. And also, besides that, there was also the dedication of a basilica in Jerusalem built on the site of Mount Calvary by the Emperor Constantine. Mm -hmm. And um, of course, we know it's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So those are the two historical events that kind of is what that feast on September 14th celebrates. So, Kyle, I encourage you to observe it this year. I will. I will. <laughs> what is the word sepulcher? Where does that come from? The sepulcher is the tomb of Jesus. Okay. So, if you go into the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, they have an edicule, which is a small building church in the middle of the church that's built over it. Uh-huh. And in the, within that edicule is the tomb of Jesus. But then if you enter the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and turn to the right and go up the steps, you find the Chapel of Calvary. And that's, and even you can see some of the rock of Golgotha, of Mount Calvary. I loved when I had the opportunity to pray there. I mean, what a place to pray. Yeah. And that, of course, commemorates the site of where Jesus died. So the church really encloses both sites. The calvary but also the the tomb of jesus and what we do on the feast of the exaltation of the holy cross though is is really we're commemorating the uh saving death of jesus for us on the cross and his resurrection because of course death was defeated by christ's love on Mm -hmm. the cross and that's revealed of course in the resurrection so the gates of heaven were open for us. So that's why we exalt the cross. That instrument of torture became really the instrument of salvation. We can think of the tree of death in the Garden of Eden and the tree of life in the cross of Jesus. And you know, this has a special relevance in our diocese too because we have the congregation of Holy Cross. Uh Uh, Many Holy Cross priests, brothers and sisters on the South Bend side of the diocese. So this is a very special feast for them. Actually, their patronal feast, though, is the next day, September 15th, the Feast of Our Lady of Sorrows. That's the actual patron saint of the congregation. But but I would say that when we think about um, the Holy Cross congregation, their motto is... Ave Crux Spes Nostra, Hail to the Cross, Our Only Hope. Hmm. Spes Unica, yeah. 
only hope. So it's a beautiful motto. If you ever go in the Basilica of the Sacred Heart at Notre Dame and you go back in the apse, the chapel behind the main altar, look up at the ceiling and you'll see a uh, painting of the cross and those words spes unica underneath it, only hope. It's really beautiful. Huh. And I read that the way they found the true cross is they found these three crosses all together and they brought a sick man to them and he was healed in front of one of the crosses and that's how they figured out that this was the cross of Jesus. Kyle, I didn't know that. Thank you for teaching your bishop. <laughs> well, I was wondering Thanks, how much I of didn't this know that. is a legend and how much are we sure that this is the location of the true cross? I think there's good evidence that it was the yeah. true cross, but I didn't know that story that you just shared. Yeah. Well, and I've heard we also have a piece of the true cross here in the diocese? Yes, very, very small sliver. And, and you'll find them in a lot of churches throughout the world, including some parishes here in our own diocese, including the cathedral. And they're authenticated. They came from Rome. Of course, the cross was brought to Rome after St. Helen discovered it. But they made relics, a lot of relics, very, very small pieces. Mm -hmm. And then with the Holy Sepulchre, we also have in the diocese, we see this at some of the big events and stuff, the knights and dames of the Holy Sepulchre? Yes, the knights and ladies. It's the, it's the equestrian order of the Holy Sepulchre of Jerusalem. I'm a member. It's really a wonderful order that goes back to the Middle Ages. And the order supported pilgrims to the Holy Land and the Christian sites in the Holy Land. That's how it began. But even now, the equestrian order supports the church's charitable and educational works in the Holy Land, and they really do need our support because we have a dwindling Christian population in the Holy Land. But the wonderful works that are being done in areas of education and health care and social and charity, charitable works, by the Catholic Church, they're a lot of it's supported by the knights and ladies of the Holy Sepulchre. And they have kind of a traditional outfit that they wear. And the women usually are wearing black. A black there... cape and the men a white cape. And both have the Jerusalem cross on it. And for those who don't know, a Jerusalem cross, you've probably seen, it's a cross that has between each of the beams four little crosses. Huh. So that's called the Jerusalem cross. That was a symbol of the crusaders. It okay. goes back to the crusades. Is there any symbolism with the, the black and the white capes? I don't know. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I never wear one because I'm always in my bishop's vestments. <laughs> are, they, are the members chosen for that organization? Or is you it have to be nominated. It okay. um, has to be a Catholic in good standing. Uh -huh. And I approve any nominations. And... And then it goes, the, the question order is present all over the world. Uh -huh. In the United States, there are several what they call lieutenancies. They're kind of like regional chapters. Okay. So we're part of the North Central Lieutenancy, which is based in Chicago. I was nominated by Cardinal Keeler when I was 
rector at Mount St. Mary's Seminary, so I was invested as a member of the order at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Washington, D.C. Oh, wow. Franciscan Monastery has a replica huh. of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and, all, uh, and various shrines. If you ever go to Washington, D.C., I highly recommend visiting the Franciscan Monastery there. But that's where I was invested. It was uh, that lieutenancy, I think, was called the, the Mid-Atlantic Lieutenancy. Okay. Okay, so tomorrow we have the Feast of the Exaltation of the Holy Cross. You mentioned on Friday is the Feast of Our Lady of Sorrows. There's seven sorrows associated with Our Lady. Can you explain what those are? Well, Kyle, I think it'd be good for for our <laughs> listeners if if you would be able to name all seven sorrows. You know what? I was afraid you would do that. So I I did a little research and was looking them up. So I, correct me if I'm wrong here. The first one is at the prophecy of Simeon, where Simeon said, you yourself shall be pierced with a sword so that the thoughts of many hearts may be laid bare. And that's in Luke. Uh, the second one is at the flight into Egypt. He said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, which I think this has a lot of uh, interesting tie-in with the uh, immigrant situation that we've been talking about with the Dream Act and DACA lately. The third one is having lost the Holy Child at Jerusalem. Uh, the fourth, meeting Jesus on his way to Calvary, which there's that powerful scene. Have you seen the Passion of Christ? Oh, yeah. A uh, powerful scene where Mary is watching Jesus uh, walk up to his crucifixion, basically. The fifth one is standing at the foot of the cross. Uh, it says, near the cross of Jesus, there stood his mother, and she's watching his crucifixion. The sixth one is Jesus being taken from the cross, and th that's kind of powerfully represented in the Pieta. Michelangelo, yeah. yes. And then the seventh is at the burial of Christ. Did I? How wow. did I do? Kyle, I'm impressed. <laughs> I can read. I can read. I, I didn't have those memorized <laughs> by any means. Sometimes you see depictions of the Blessed Mother with her heart exposed and seven so swords yeah. piercing her heart. That's a, an image of the seven sorrows. So really on September 15th, we think of Mary under that title. We think of her seven sorrows and especially her intense suffering and her grief mm -hmm. during the passion and death of Jesus. I think this is an important feast for us because I always find that when there's suffering in my life or, you know, to feel Mary's compassion and her closeness to us, I think that's something very powerful. We know that she shared in our human suffering, and she still does, that she is our compassionate mother, our loving mother. So this is a really beautiful feast. Are there any of those seven sorrows that particularly kind of jumps out to you and, and is something that you like to reflect on? Yeah, I would say when she's standing at the foot of the cross, because it's at that moment where Jesus entrusted her to us as our spiritual mother. Mm -hmm. When our Lord said to John, behold your mother, and when he said to Mary, behold your son, that is a beautiful, powerful meditation that while he was dying, you know, kind of have a last will and testament before death, well, Jesus is leaving us a beautiful inheritance, his own mother. There's kind of a, 
a false version of the gospel that's gone around the uh, prosperity gospel that if you you know, pray and and give to God, then you won't have these struggles and trials in your life. That everything will go well and and you'll get all of these blessings. Mary's kind of an example that she did everything right, but still had sufferings. Exactly, exactly. And we see that in the lives of saints like Mother Teresa, mm-hmm. where she had a real deep suffering in her life where she didn't feel the consolations of Jesus in her prayer, but yet she had faith, you know? She saw that as, as a share in the sufferings of Jesus, who also felt abandoned hmm. in Gethsemane and on the cross when our Lord cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So yeah, we have to reject the prosperity gospel. I mean, that's just not the true gospel. As friends of Jesus, we're also called to share in his passion. All right. Well, coming up, I want to talk to you a little bit about the issue that's kind of going across the nation with racism and the USCCB's ad hoc committee against racism. Talk a little bit about that. And then we'll take some time to answer some questions submitted by listeners. And if you would like to submit your questions, you can do so by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash Ask Bishop. And we'll be right back with more on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, and we're going to take some questions from you in just a minute. Uh, Before we do, we kind of wanted to comment a little bit on some current event things and the response by the bishops. There's been a lot of issues across the nation with racism and this kind of division that's happening with the statues and controversy, whether they should be there or shouldn't be there. Uh, There's been, you know, uh, the car that ran over the young woman, and just seems to be a lot of Uh, hatred built into some of these demonstrations and things. Uh, What is the Catholic's response to these situations? You know, it's so upsetting to see this terrible evil of racism, this poison in in our society still around. You know, um, it goes against fundamental teachings of our Catholic faith that every human being is created in the image and likeness of God. And the sin of racism, which has really afflicted our nation from the very beginning, we had a a civil war, that that we still see this, and, and we need to continue to challenge the sin of racism and come together as a society to find solutions. I think it's important that the bishops, that the USCCB, formed a an ad hoc committee against racism and i know the chair he's a really good bishop the bishop of youngstown ohio racism is really it's it's hatred really it's the the terrible sin of of hatred i think as americans we have to be a better people the events in charlottesville were extremely upsetting Um, the existence of hate groups like the Ku Klux Klan. Remember, Catholics were targets of the Ku Klux Klan back in the 1800s and early 1900s. Neo-Nazis mm-hmm. um, and other white supremacists. It's sad. These people really, I think, also need to be helped. What turns someone into a, a white supremacist? Yeah. What makes one a, a neo-Nazi or a member of the KKK? Obviously, they're troubled individuals, Mm -hmm. I think. You mentioned the USCCB's ad hoc committee against racism. First of all, what is an ad hoc committee? 
it would be distinct from a permanent committee. Okay. So we have certain permanent committees. An ad hoc committee has a, a temporary term. Might be for a year, it might be for three years. We had the ad hoc committee on religious liberty. Mm-hmm. But last year we decided and we voted to make that a permanent committee. Right. Because we see that the issues uh, challenging our religious liberty weren't going away. Mm-hmm. So we needed to make the committee permanent. And so what is the goals of the ad hoc committee against racism? I think they're only getting started. I don't know if they've actually set goals other than the general goal of combating racism in our society. I would imagine there will be some perhaps a prayer campaign, mm-hmm. perhaps particular projects or actions to combat racism through education, through advocacy, through uh, other means. But I think it's too early. I think they'll have to come together. They're going to be looking at some lasting solutions so that racism won't, will no longer have a place in, in our society. Do you think that will trickle down into events or calls to action within our diocese? Oh, I would expect so, yeah. 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 I think if it's going to be effective, it can't just be on the national level. It has to come down to the dioceses and really individual parishes and schools. It should be also a part of our curriculum, and it already is, Mm -hmm. because it comes within the social teaching of the church as well on the dignity of the human person. I mean, that's the most fundamental principle of Catholic social doctrine. So... Racism is a a sin, thou shalt not kill, which, as you know, also involves harming others. Mm -hmm. Have you seen this kind of uh, hatred directed towards Catholics here in our diocese? I mean, there's been that persistent anti-Catholic prejudice in our country. Yeah, I mean, I've gotten some hate letters, Mm -hmm. and it's clear that the hate letters that I've received usually come from people who are very Mm anti-Catholic. Mm-hmm. And again, like you said, they need our prayers, they need support. There's probably something that has caused hurt or pain at some point in their life that has turned them against the Catholic Church or maybe just been led astray at some point. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, coming up, we're going to take questions that have been submitted by listeners. You can submit your questions by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop, and you can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, we'll ask your questions that have been submitted by listeners right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, and this is one of my favorite parts of the show, is when we get to answer questions submitted by listeners. Our first question comes from James Pratt from Culver. He writes, The other night, I went to pray with some Protestant friends. When does it become scandalous to participate in non-Catholic worship? Thanks, James, for that question. You know, I'll I'll just send greetings to James Pratt. James just graduated from the University of Notre Dame this past spring. Congratulations. Yeah, and he's been hired as the Catholic campus minister at Culver Academies. Oh, good. So I hope he's doing well. And I'll add to that, his brother John, his older brother John, also a Notre Dame graduate, was just hired by the diocese, by me actually, Uh (laughs) as... um, as the uh, new director of the Diocesan Office of Youth Ministry. Oh, good. 
and the Pratt family, their parishioners at St. Pius X in Granger. So, so anyhow, thank you, James, for your question. You mentioned that the other night you went to pray with some Protestant friends. That's a very good thing, that we pray together with our Protestant brothers and sisters. And we can do so formally or informally. We could, obviously, there are ecumenical services, and there's no problem. As a matter of fact, we're encouraged to pray together at ecumenical services. But I think what you're referring to is just going to, let's say, non-Catholic worship in other churches. I think I'd like to begin by saying that if a Catholic goes to a, let's say, a Protestant worship service, it's very important that Catholic cannot and should not receive communion mm -hmm. in a non-Catholic church. That's, that's not allowed by canon law because to receive communion in a non-Catholic church would be a recognition of something that we don't believe that that would be a, a valid Eucharist. So I would say, though, that there's nothing specifically forbidding Catholics from attending Protestant worship services. Obviously, you can't do it as uh, fulfilling your Sunday obligation. Mm -hmm. If you did that, you'd still have to go to, Sunday, to uh, Catholic Mass. And also, when one attends a non-Catholic prayer service, one would have to be careful about elements that may not be compatible with our faith. Now, I would guess most things, most of the prayers, most of the hymns would be compatible mm -hmm. with the Catholic faith, but there would be some, very possibly, that wouldn't be. So, therefore, one would have to be careful. One shouldn't be saying prayers or singing a hymn with words that we would not consider compatible with our faith. We wouldn't consider them to be true. And I suppose there's some denominations that are probably closer to our understanding and interpretation of Scripture, and others might be a little further away and might have some kind of weird interpretations of Scripture. Correct. And I think, or erroneous interpretations, I would say, for example, the closest, and they're not Protestants, are the Orthodox. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, I'd be very comfortable, you know, if there's no Catholic church around and all a Catholic could do was go to an Orthodox church, that would satisfy the Sunday obligation because the Orthodox church has valid sacraments, mm -hmm. a valid Eucharist, valid holy orders. I remember once that I had an experience where I was in kind of a remote area in Greece, and the only church I could go to was an Orthodox church. We'd even be allowed to receive Holy Communion there, but the Orthodox would not allow that, so you have to respect okay. their discipline. But as far as our Protestant brothers and sisters, again, we hold so much in common, common baptism, common belief in the Holy Trinity, common respect for Holy Scripture as the Word of God, so many things we hold in common. But there are still areas that we don't hold in common, and we have to face them and hopefully continue to work for overcoming our divisions. Is there a little bit more meat in that question of it being scandalous to participate in some types of non-Catholic worship? Is there a situation where somebody might think that your participation there would be an endorsement for the belief system or maybe setting an example for others? Well, yeah, I mean, I would say why, yeah, I think it could be scandalous if, for example, there might be a particular denomination that's very anti-Catholic, 
you don't want to participate there. Mm -hmm. That would be scandalous. Also, I wouldn't know what would be the reason for one going. I think one reason that I think is more common would be a mixed marriage. Uh-huh. I know couples, Catholic married to, Catholics married to Protestants, who will go to both churches on Sunday. And I think that's fine. I don't think that's scandalous. One of our listeners had a follow-up to a previous question. It said, during the show with high school teens, you mentioned that parents should get their teens or young adults involved with youth groups. As a parent of a young adult with autism, what are our options? We struggled with his education and sit in the back of church due to stairs. Wow, thank you for that question. It's very important for the church. Our parishes, our schools, our youth groups, young adult groups, to be welcoming and inclusive to everyone. I've, I've spoken about this many times, and to be open and welcoming to those with special needs. Mm-hmm. And that includes our young people with autism. There's a, a range, obviously, of types and severity of autism. We speak of autism spectrum disorder. And I've read a statistic that one in 150 of American children have some type of autism. They fall somewhere on that spectrum. Uh-huh. It can be very mild or it could be pretty severe. Obviously, it's easier to integrate young people with a mild form of autism into the programs and activities of the church. But what is, I think, really important is education. The education of our priests, our parish leaders, our teachers, ministers, to understand better the unique needs of youth with autism. Because then we can more successfully include them mm-hmm. in our programs and our activities. We have to recognize what are some of the difficulties. Some of the difficulties of those with autism could be social interactions, difficulties with communication, difficulties in some behavior. And there's often triggers that mm-hmm. can make a person with autism anxious or upset or, or angry. So we need to know about these triggers so that we can avoid them. Sometimes it's when there's a lot of noise or sensory overload, a change in routine, whatever it might be. So education is key. It's important that we learn what to do. For example, when a young person with autism gets upset or has a a meltdown of sorts, there's different techniques for relaxation, taking a break, things like that. So the first step that I would recommend is that the parish or the school learn about the child and his or her needs and about their autism. And where do they learn that from the parents? Yeah. You know, the parents are so important in this regard. They know how to cope with their child's autism. They know what to do. So I think that's always should be the first step. And then, of course, with the parents' permission, if you talk about a youth group or a young adult group, it's really important to educate the other youth Mm -hmm. so they understand and they're able to help so that they can interact well, that they understand the behavior that's going on so that they don't, you know, obviously what would be terrible is make fun of of, of the other person or, or get upset with the person. No, they have to be helped to understand the autism. I think inclusion 
should be our goal, always should be our goal. We might have to make adaptations. Sometimes a young person with autism would be more comfortable in a small group setting rather than a large group. Sometimes a partner approach can help. I have had some children with autism who I've confirmed they've been with their class, they've sat there, but then there's some who have more, and I've, you know, part of the confirmation ceremony, but then there are a few where the parents have said, Bishop, they won't be able to handle the large group. And then what I'll do is I'll, before the confirmation, I'll confirm the young person with autism in a private ceremony just with the family. Okay. So I think we have to have that flexibility to adapt. All right. One more question before our break. Andrea Serrani from the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception asked, have you ever issued an official pastoral letter? And is there a topic you'd most like to cover but haven't had a chance to yet? I've issued many pastoral statements, but as far as a pastoral letter, only one. And that was when I was Bishop of Harrisburg and we had a diocesan Marian year. And hmm. I had a, uh, I wrote a pastoral letter on Mary and living a life of faith, hope, and charity with Mary as our model. Here in the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend, because I do a weekly column in the newspaper, I really have focused on that rather than a pastoral letter, and I've been able to cover so many different topics. So if I had time, I'd love to write a pastoral letter. It's just I don't really have time. As far as what topic I'd want to cover, oh man, there are many. I'd love to write a pastoral letter on prayer, on the Eucharist, on sacraments, on evangelization, marriage and family, Catholic education. I mean, so many interests and so many needs, but I think it's more practical and more uh, feasible for me right now to do statements and do um, my weekly column. And this weekly radio show. There you go. Is, is there the difference between like a, a message or a statement versus a pastoral letter? Is that one of length or is there an official no, it's, designation? It's basic. There's no definition. I, when I was asked that question, I thought immediately of length. Uh -huh. I think of a pastoral letter as being longer than a pastoral statement. So it would have more reflection. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we will... Have more questions here coming up. You can ask your question by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we'll have more of your questions coming up right here in Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity. I'm Kyle Hyman here with Bishop Rhodes. We've got more questions submitted by listeners. And this one comes from Kathleen Fogarty from St. Vincent de Paul Parish in Fort Wayne. She asked, what is the process you observe for assigning priests to parishes? Thank you, Kathleen, for that question. I have a priest personnel board. This is kind of a committee of priests that advise me about priest assignments. So when there are openings in parishes, especially around January, February, before we do the actual transfers and the priest changes, I'll bring this group together and seek their advice. And it's very, very helpful to me. After that, I would say I do my own thinking about it. I th consider the advice that I was given. I also think about the needs of the particular parish, the strengths of particular priests. Mm -hmm. And then um, I pray about it. I don't m usually make the decision quickly. I pray. 
then I'll call the priests in and discuss it with them. Of course, the challenge is there's a domino effect when it comes right. to assigning priests. Right. So I might find the priests I think will be perfect for a particular parish, but then I have to then find someone to take his place where right. he was at. So it's a tough job. And the thing that's also tough is is the people of the diocese, Not I love the people of the diocese, they're not tough, but what I mean is some people, I think, just look at their parish and mm -hmm. they don't realize that I have 82 parishes that I have to consider and we just don't have enough priests for all the assignments that we need. Many times they're thinking, oh, we want this priest. I had a letter I remember where some were saying, well, we want a younger priest. Well, you send a younger priest there and we're not, you know, or things like that. Well, I only have so many younger priests yeah. <laughs> and I only have so many experienced older priests. I remember once where I was getting complaints about one, someone wanting old, younger priests. And then I sent a younger priest as a pastor somewhere and I got a letter of complaint that he was too young. <laughs> <laughs> the grass is always greener on yeah, the other side, maybe. Yeah. I said, why are you sending someone who didn't have any experience being a pastor before? So, um, yeah, but, you know, you can't please everybody. That's just impossible. Do you have in the back of your head a certain amount of time that is either average or kind of your maximum length of having a priest in a particular parish? Not really. I mean, when I was Bishop of Harrisburg, we had six-year terms for pastors. We okay. don't have terms here. I also look at the, the needs of the priest because there might be some priests who might find a particular assignment really difficult mm -hmm. or too challenging, you know? So I have to consider the needs of the people, the abilities of the priest, and then try to do the best we can. And I know whenever we've had priests move and people get disappointed, I have to remind myself that it's not the priest that we are to be attached to, it's to the church and to God. And, and sometimes we can kind of develop too much of a dependence on a particular priest. Yeah, I agree. And priests have to also have a certain detachment to go where they're needed. Yeah. It's not easy for a priest to be transferred either sometimes, especially if he loves the parish, he's sure. got close to the people. But yet, our primary service is to God and His church. And so we go where we're sent. That's part of the promise of obedience that a priest makes at his ordination, to go where he's needed. What about our missionary priests from foreign countries that come here? How does that work? Do you get contacted by them or do you reach out to their bishop? Or It's happened both ways. When I came, I noticed that the Diocese of Fort Wayne South Bend had a lot of foreign-born priests. And I wasn't used to that. And I've seen the generosity of these priests that they've left their homes, homelands to come here and serve where we've been in need. And some of the international priests come from areas that have really been blessed with a lot of priestly vocations, like, the, like Nigeria mm -hmm. in Africa. So that's really something. But normally, I mean, my hope is that we need to have our own homegrown vocations. That's why I push for priestly vocation so much. We really need to take assume that responsibility. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I, I see the gifts of, of the international priests who've come, how they've shared not only their priestly ministry, but also their cultures with us. I think that's been beneficial. There have been some places where the accents of some of the foreign priests are such that people sometimes find it hard to understand and that could be upsetting for some people. And I know some of our international priests understand that as well, and they, they'll print out their homilies, for example, so right. people can read along. And I think that's a helpful thing to do. 
All right, we had somebody submit a question about the Alpha program. I have concerns about the use of Alpha program in our diocese since it was originally a Protestant faith formation program. Can you explain the decision to bring it to our diocese, and are there Catholic programs available to use instead? I don't know how the Alpha program began in our diocese, to be honest, but I know it, it began, it was developed by an Anglican parish in England over 30 years ago, and millions of people have participated across, you know, and it's been Christians of all different denominations. Mm-hmm. And it's a, basically a 10-week course, and it introduces people to the Christian faith, the very core of the Christian faith, the kerygma. Uh-huh. And, um, Can you explain that, the kerygma? Yeah. The kerygma is really the proclamation of Christ. It's, it's the most fundamental first step in evangelization. It's the idea that God sent us his son to be our savior and that he suffered and died for us and rose from the dead. Mm-hmm. That's the kerygma. So the proclamation of the kerygma, that's the initial proclamation, also involves that response in faith to Jesus Christ, the entrusting of ourselves to him. So that's the first step. That's the step of being evangelized. And that's what the Alpha program is all about. Mm-hmm. Where we concentrate a lot is on catechesis. Well, catechesis is to build upon the kerygma. What we do sometimes is we put the cart before the horse. We start doing catechesis and someone hasn't yet encountered Christ as their savior. Yeah. That's why I think a program like Alpha is good because it kind of helps to bring about that initial conversion. But then it's really important that we move to the next step of catechesis. It's not just the kerygma, then you have to learn. You have to learn the creed, for example, and the various parts of our faith. Now, is Alpha perfect? Well, I want to say, first of all, it's been adapted for Catholics. Right. So I think one has to be careful, obviously, but I, I think it's been a very effective tool for awakening faith in people. And some people, for example, who are on the fringes of the church, of parish life, and they go to this Alpha course, and they get converted, and mm-hmm. then they get very active in their faith. I mean, that's really good. Is it a perfect program? No. I don't know that we have any really perfect program, but I've seen people converted to Christ and become better Catholics. Yeah. Again, I would only use the, the Alpha course that's been adapted for Catholics. Again, everyone should keep in mind, it's a basic introduction Mm -hmm. to the gospel. It's not a systematic catechesis. It's not a course in theology. That comes later. I know there are a lot of parishes around our country that use the Alpha program and are really excited about it. And one final question. We've talked about your interest in sports, but uh, this one says, did you play sports as a child? And if yes, what sports did you play? Yeah, I did, but I had difficulties. I had really bad asthma when I was growing up. So I did play Little League Baseball. I played basketball was always my favorite sport growing Uh up. But I really struggled because sometimes I would, you know, St. Mary's School in Lebanon, I played basketball. But I couldn't play much because I would run down the court 
and have an asthma attack. I mean, I mm. really had it bad. I had to be taken to the hospital a number of times. Thanks be to God, I grew out of it yeah. uh, by college. And then I was much more involved in intramural sports, both football and basketball and tennis. Actually, tennis in high school, intramural football and basketball in college. And I was able to do it because I, I kind of grew out of the asthma, Mo mostly grew out. I'm still allergic to animals and things like that. But now I can run. It was hard. I couldn't run as a child very uh -huh. much because I had asthma so bad. Was the football that you were playing, was that full pads or was that flag football? No, flag football. <laughs> yeah. Although, no, I did play, not with pads. I've, I've played tackle, but without pads. <laughs> I also played in my first couple of parish assignments. I'd get together with some of the other young guy, young adult men in the parish when I was a young, young man. And we would get together and play football and yeah. basketball, more basketball, actually. Sure. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. Could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure, Kyle. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you so much, Bishop. You're welcome. Join us every Wednesday at noon for Truth in Charity with Bishop Rhodes. On the next show, Bishop will talk about attending weddings and the special situations Catholics should consider. And also, he'll answer questions submitted by listeners. If you would like to ask Bishop Rhodes a question for him to answer on a future show, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Thanks to Notre Dame Federal Credit Union for underwriting this program.